0: Device
1: Nation. Greetings and salutations, my fenestrated friend group. Say that 10 times fast. And welcome to Device Nation. If you're looking for volumetric porosity in your podcast listing, well, guess what? You found it. My name is Kevin Brown. Your congenial colleague. And I hope you were having an absolutely awesome day. I know I certainly am. Quick start guide for new listeners. What are we all about here? We're about making each other better in the challenging waters we call medical device sales. And at the same time, hearing from people that we need to know about. And today is no exception as we get to hear from Chattanooga sports medicine surgeon. Guitarist and entrepreneur. Forget about cooling the gang, summer madness. We're going suture madness with Dr. Brett. Sanders. I will never forget being in a challenging rotary cup surgery with a dear friend of mine. And at one point in the case, there were so many suture tails coming out of that patient's shoulder. It looked like the telephone key system in the closet of his office. And we must have had the same revelation at the same time because he looked around at me and he said, suture madness, and a phrase was born. Well, you won't find any madness today as we talk about the behavioral influence stairway model as inspired by former BSU chief for the FBI and friend of Device Nation, Dr. Greg Vecchi. No, this stairway is there to bring peace and tranquility into your relationship-selling efforts. We're getting our steps in here, and we've talked about the landing of this stairway starting from nothing. We've talked about the questions that necessarily have to be part of getting to this first step. And we've talked about the challenges and active listening that follow you up this entire stairway. And now we find ourselves upon what I consider to be the most important step of this entire stairway. Even more important, the next one of rapport and trust. And the final one, the only step that your company cares one bit about, the only step that they believe affects that upcoming quarterly earnings report, behavior change. Yes, this step is the key to all the other steps. And some could argue it's the key to everything. Because if we all walked in the totality of this word, there would probably be no prison, no divorce, no Twitter in its current form. Well, you probably know where this is going. The step is empathy. Well, let's define it. It's the ability to understand and share the feelings of others. And I know some of you are going, Kevin, this doesn't feel salesy at all. This feels touchy Feely. What does this have to do with selling my trochanteric nail? And more importantly, what does it have to do with the Drake Passage? Well, let's look at this word with some fresh eyes. The Drake Passage, named after the explorer and circumnavigator of the globe, Sir Francis Drake, a choke point between South America and Antarctica, where the Pacific flows through to the Atlantic. It's all part of the west-to-east Antarctic circumpolar current ACC. No, not the ACC. Tournament, the water flows freaking fast through there, up to 150 million cubic meters of water per second, five times faster than the flow of the Amazon. Just nuts. The conditions can change in a moment and go from what they call the Drake Lake to the Drake Shake, up to 40-foot waves, sideways blizzard, and gale force conditions. The most treacherous body of water in the world. So put your finger on that thought for just a second. I distinctly remember standing out on the bow of a ship with a professor friend of mine, very wise. And as he packed his pipe and stared off to the horizon... He turned to me and he said, Kevin, and I knew this was going to be good, and it was. He said, you know, the ocean just doesn't give a damn. And as I put this podcast together, I was reminded of that, and I thought, you know, there is a lot of truth to that. The Drake Passage doesn't care who you are what you think about the conditions of the sea state, whether or not you prepared for your trip or not. You can get all upset about the wave heights. You can be upset that it's snowing now or icebergs are threatening to crush your ship. It doesn't care, right? It's up to you to subordinate yourself to the ocean as a captain to make sure that your cargo crew and passengers get safely to the other side, right? So the takeaway here is that a good captain, he or she will subordinate their frame to the frame of the ocean. We've talked about frames before. Frames are relevant to empathy, right? Because empathy is you putting your frame down and getting into that other person's frame and not subjecting your frame upon theirs, totally hearing it from their frame. And a captain going across the Drake Passage Certainly has to do that, right? Drake Passage, like the honey badger, doesn't care. The captain has to get inside the ocean's frame. So here's a little bonus feature as we ponder the old man and the sea. If you know that the ocean doesn't care, does that mean you don't sail? Absolutely not. It just means you need to be prepared. It means you need to adapt to sea state conditions, knowing that there's going to be a payoff down the road when you get to your eventual destination. And the same thing holds true for corporate structure. As we talk about leadership, right? Ideally, corporate leadership, needs to subordinate their frame to the rank and file so they understand what's going on at ground level, and then in turn, an opportunity for the rank and file to subordinate their frame to leadership so they can understand... The challenges facing the people at the top. Does this happen in reality? Absolutely, almost never. So what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean going on cafe pharma all the time and just complaining. You're complaining about the ocean and the ocean doesn't care. Your company doesn't care about your complaints. And I think once we remove that expectation, right, let's just say they don't care, then that frees us up, right? Frees us up to prepare for the journey adapt to sea state conditions, and just enjoy the ride and know that in a corporate sense, a lot of times there's a payoff for us as we get our eyes off the wrong thing and put it on the right thing. Now, the payoff for the captain going across the Drake Passage is landing in Antarctica, which I understand to be One of the most beautiful places in the world. Well, what's the payoff for us? Well, here's payoff number one, the very next step on the behavioral influence stairway model, rapport and trust. If you're going to gain someone's trust and you're telling them that your trochanteric nail is the best one on the market and has all these amazing features and you want them to actually believe you and think that you are shooting them straight, you don't get there without going through empathy. I hear companies talk about this all the time. You know, we just need trust between leadership and the rank and file, but they've made no effort to show empathy and demonstrate it in a viable way to the sales force. So trust just doesn't happen. Our parents told us don't trust strangers. It's intuitive. We just don't give it out to anybody walking down the street. It's something you have to earn. So if you want your presentations to have pop, and people to actually listen to what you're saying and believe you, that you're telling them something that is truly in their best interest. Doesn't happen. That trust is not granted unless you have gone through the steps of empathy first. Well, here's payoff number two, and this is a powerful word. It's a word called context. The word context comes from a Latin foundation of how something is made. I love this, but I love this one even more. The words that surround a word. You know what? Social media is not context at all. It's people yelling at each other with no context. I don't know why you're saying what you're saying. I don't know your background. I don't know your heart behind it. I don't know your life experiences. And that's why it's so frustrating because there is no context. A friend of mine said that you can be right or you can be married, <laughs> and that was great advice, and as I pondered that, I was thinking how much conflict in a marriage, and I say this to myself, right, is because a lack of context, because I didn't do my due diligence in getting inside of my wife's frame so I could really understand why she was saying what she was saying and what she was saying. I just treated symptoms, so to speak, and responded to a tone of or the dry words on paper, what it would look like there, with no concern or in what was actually being said, or even asking, what did you really mean by that, or digging deeper. So then we end up, like on social media, right, getting all agitated over things that, at the end of the day, weren't even real because we didn't have context. So this is where this all dials home, right? You do the work, you ask the questions, you get into your customer's frame, they in turn share things with you, you actively listen, you demonstrate empathy, do that process over and over again, and you will develop context so you will know how to engage with your customer. That will develop rapport and trust, which will be a great foundation for you to show things that you think bring value To them. Now, critical in this whole process, and I'm going to tie it up right here, is that if there is you in that frame, right? If you're trying to superimpose your frame into their frame, then you're going to miss something because you're going to hear some of the things that they're going to say through your eyes, and that is going to contaminate the conversation and context will be the casualty. So that's why we went on our journey through the treacherous waters of the Drake Passage, just for that metaphor. The captain is completely subservient to the sea from a posture perspective. And as we take that posture with the people around us, it's going to give us good information and it's going to create great relationships, which hopefully will lead to opportunities to help them. Well, I'm super thankful for our next guest coming on the show to help us understand all the exciting things he has going on and the wonderful world of sports medicine. Love this company. He started Tensor Surgical. I'm going to have a link for it in the show notes. Let's give a great big device nation welcome to Dr. Brett Sanders.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I've listened to some of your podcasts with some of the previous guests, and uh, you've had some really great people on there.
1: Well, you were too kind, Dr. Sanders. It's an honor to have you on Device Nation. Uh, You're quite the rising star in the sports medicine arena. I look forward to asking you about regenerative medicine, trans tunneling, combat sports. But first, let's leave Signal Mountain and head back to Nashville. What put you on the path to medicine?
0: Well, I basically learned medicine at the dinner table. My dad was a plastic surgeon, had a lot of influence on on my uh, interests career-wise growing up and I've thought about this recently about being fortunate to have a target early in life and aim for it, you know, when you're young. So I kind of knew I wanted to go into surgery from when I was back in high school. That kicked me off on the path into medicine.
1: When did you decide that orthopedics was what you wanted to do?
0: Well, I ended up going to the University of Virginia and doing the bachelor's, master's program initially in biomedical engineering and then subsequently ended up in physics. I wanted to actually read a book every now and then that wasn't a programming language or something. But uh, that kind of got me interested in the, um, in the device uh, or the mechanics, you know, of the body and, and uh, subsequently devices. That changed my trajectory from sort of more plastic surgery, creative side, more into a little bit more analytical side. And then when I, saw, when I met the ortho guys at uh, Campbell Clinic, it was game over. Those are the guys I wanted to be hanging out with, and I figured they had the most fun of anybody, so why not go try to join them?
1: I saw that you did a fellowship at Harvard. J.P. Warner is such an iconic figure in the upper extremity space. What was it like working with him and, and working at Harvard?
0: Yeah, it was unbelievable. You know, at the time, that was uh, the Intercontinental Fellowship, and there were guys going over to Christian Gerber in Zurich, and I was one of the first guys to do a full year there, and I started out as Peter Millett's fellow. Who now's the shoulder chief at uh, Stephen Hawkins, and then midway through he went to Stephen Hawkins, and Larry Higgins came on, and so I got to work with you know Millet Higgins and Warner all at the same time. It was really incredible you know, the amount of complex uh, surgeries that that were coming through there, and the way they set up the program. It was really progressive in terms of fellows working together. You were working with fellows from all over the country, you know, Parkland, uh, you know, wherever they came from, Duke, you know, and the fellows would have a fellows clinic and go do cases together. And so you were sort of learning from multiple angles, you know, doing a ton of of clinical surgery and and research opportunities. Just really, really unbelievable experience. Quite a difference from my second fellowship when I went over to Europe and worked in the NHS and, and the Royal Infirmary did upper extremity and trauma over there and traveled around, spent some more time with Laurent LaFosse, who was coming over to Boston when I was there, but got to see totally different, super high-tech, you know, mass general to, you know, cost containment, like in a socialist, uh, you know, NHS type system. It was a really interesting contrast.
1: I saw that the Alps Surgery Institute in France, and you did hand training in England and in Edinburgh. Where did that international inspiration come from?
0: There was a guy named George Wright at Emory when I was uh, doing my residency there, who was like the best surgeon I'd ever seen at the time. And he did a full Kleinert hand fellowship, did a full joint fellowship, then did another, you know, six months in Edinburgh. Traveled around really a southern gentleman, amazing surgeon who would come in and when we were at Grady struggling as residents, you know, he would kind of come in and magically do the one maneuver that made everything fall in place. And he was the guy that got me on to the uh, the Edinburgh experience. And that was one of the last fellowships. I don't even know if they're able to do it anymore because of the EU laws and so forth, but it was really one of the only fellowships where you could go over there fully credentialed as a North American surgeon and, and basically take trauma call and be, you know, a consultant over there and operate and, and not just watch. So it was a full immersion experience and just really amazing collegiality and a lot of friends and people to catch up with at the AAOS.
1: You know, an evolving specialty that's really taking off is uh, this whole field of regenerative medicine. And I saw on LinkedIn recently, you celebrated your third year as a fellow of the American Board of Regenerative Medicine tell us about it.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I've always been interested in, in keeping track of innovations and, you know, I was telling someone the other day, it's amazing. I mean, you know, I did two fellowships and trained, you know, with some of the top people in the world. And, you know, it was like within five years of being out, I felt like I was pretty much on top of all the current techniques and there's just new stuff coming out all the time. It's like every five, 10 years, you really have to you know, re- go relearn some new things that are kind of inconvenient. You know, you're not going to learn them in your fellowship. So, you know, ultrasound and regen med was one of these things that I had to kind of pick up in my practice and, and went and uh, trained with uh, some of the top guys doing that, doing those techniques. And that's a really interesting niche that's coming out in the grand scheme of things in, in regard to healthcare, I think, in private practice, where. You know, it kind of flies under the radar of the um, insurance, which takes you know 20 to 40 years to adopt techniques. You have actually what we don't have in America anyway. The you know you have a kind of a free market where you have patient and doctor essentially solving problems with each other, and, and really that's it. And so there's there's the market, and you really just don't see that in this uh, third party controlled system. You know, of course, what one of the things I'm doing with Tensor is trying to bring in or- biologics and orthobiologics and. Because that's probably the future, that's one big you know emerging trend in, uh, in orthopedics, but it's very complex and adds a lot of cost and you know I think it's one of the things that i'm I'm watching for applications and soft tissue healing and mostly in soft tissue and also osteoarthritis in the knee is, what, is where I use it. But I think there's going to be some emerging opportunities there going forward for those who are prepared for it.
1: Well, tell me about your practice now, the Center for Sports Medicine and Orthopedics in Chattanooga. I'll include a link in the show notes for the listeners. What's your practice look like these days?
0: Well, these days, it has morphed into essentially shoulder and elbow sports and recon, complex shoulder and sports knee. So I do biologics in the knee and sports knee cartilage and uh, arthroscopic shoulder reconstruction. Tendon transfers, fractures, uh, revision, children, elbow. I spent about five years doing limb salvage, upper extremity stuff, and eventually got out of that, and, so that I could focus a little bit more on the innovation side and really drilling into new applications and shoulder for technologies, and more so uh, regen med applications in, in the knee, along with uh, cartilage and ligamentous surgery.
1: What's your favorite case to do these days? I mean, what gets you excited, knowing you're going to work to do it that day?
0: big old cuff tear is, uh, is, always a lot of fun. I mean, I think there's a lot of variables to solve in that reproducing the anatomy and, and finding what new applications and ways to utilize transosseous techniques. I mean, that's, that's where I really get to play and, and have fun, just perfecting the game and, you know, getting more and more fixation points, you know, more and more complex and interesting repair techniques and, and so forth. That's probably my funnest case. But sometimes some of the revision arthroplasty is some, some good stuff, too. But I I think that the cuffs really uh, keep me thinking.
1: I was reading an article recently about the anatomic failure rate of rotator cuff repair, and I know that's different than the functional side of it. Uh, what can regenerative medicine offer to move the needle on that number, you think?
0: Well, you know, there's a couple of studies. I mean, there's one with a uh, 10-year follow-up, Hernague that showed that bone marrow aspirate concentrate you know, increased the healing rates uh, significantly in the short and in the long term. There's some early evidence that shows increased healing. This topic, it's really complicated really fast because there's so many studies with PRP and applications where the, the quantification of what people were using was, was just not done well. So we had PRP mixtures that you just weren't sure exactly what they were, you know. It, it was, it was apples and oranges. And I believe uh, Brian Cole said we, you know, we had about a decade of, of uh, lost research there. So it's not a panacea, but with some of the things that the FDA, especially that the FDA is not currently allowing, that some of the cell amplification techniques are going to really boost the total potency of the cells. This is one of the things that I'm working on as well the rubber's going to meet the road when we have scaffolds that have you know inductive potential and cell-based regenerative potential you know attached to a scaffold so it's not just going to be sort of a magic injection it's going to be implanting these biologic scaffolds in ways that can get under the cost ceiling to allow that as well so it's you know, it's more than just the science there's an application side and there's a there's a business side to how that stuff can get on the market and start to actually help people.
1: This may be a really stupid question, but you've tapped the crest. You've got a needle full of BMAC. Where are you putting it?
0: I'm using it in the knee for osteoarthritis, in the shoulder for uh, cuff augmentation. You know, there's a significant fraction of PRP in those BMAC samples as well. So, you know, I think there's potential to to put it in a lot of different uh, healing zones. Tenderness, you know, healing areas, Achilles, etc. The Bmac seems to be good with uh, for pain relief uh, with the uh, interleukin one receptor antagonist. There's a seems to be really uh, effective in the short term at modulating inflammation areas where you're trying to calm down inflammation but also promote healing.
1: Do you just shoot it into the joint space, or do you take a needle and? you perf your repair and inject it into there. How do you do that?
0: Right. You know, in the shoulder, I'm a little more cautious about uh, the results because I think any any sort of mixture that you put into the shoulder is not going to stick around unless it has a scaffold or, or some mechanism to keep, to keep it there and, and have it elute over time. Under the repair side, you know, you can Incubate it with tapes, and there's you know there's collagen tapes, and there's there's all kinds of ways to do it. Little pledgets that can hold material are commercially available in and, and the repair side, and on and in the tendon for cuffs. This is one of the beauties of transosseous repair is that you have you have ongoing exposure to you know an active marrow source with you know a scaffold implanted directly into it with nothing impeding you know, ingress of cells there. So if you're putting something there that's inert, it's going gonna, it's gonna to basically block that or scar in, you know, after a couple of days. In the knee, I think things tend to stick around uh, a lot longer just because of the, the thickness of the retinaculum and, and everything. You know, you can get a much longer effect with the med products, I think, in the knee than you can in the shoulder at this phase anyway.
1: Walk us through a little bit of the history of uh, transosseous. I mean, McLaughlin and Near were, I think, pioneers in that area. And then what happens? Suit drinkers show up, but we're talking about transosseous again. Walk, walk us through all that.
0: Yeah, this is interesting. So, uh, you know, Codman was father of, of shoulder surgery and, interestingly, value uh, and, uh, you know, evidence based medicine as well. So he, he, w- he was at Harvard. He was one of the first guys that was talking about value. Which got him kicked out of the hospital, actually. And he was doing transosseous cuff repairs, and he was looking at evidence and saying, "Let's let's follow this and see if, you know, what we're doing is actually making sense compared to the cost of it." That's been around, you know, for a, for a hundred years, and has has produced, you know, good responses or good good outcomes. And we use it in the hip. We use it around total shoulders for subscaps. I mean, every surgeon out there knows that you can repair tendons. Physiologically, they will heal to, to transosseous sutures. This transosseous circlage effect, where you put a suture through the bone and it collapsed the tendon down and, and recapitulates the surface anatomy with reduction of the shear forces, is a really powerful mechanism. And that's really what what we've been chasing ever since. So we sort of we had the gold standard. And then what happened is the, the arthroscope was introduced in the 90s and we put blinders on and kind of went down that rabbit hole. And, and for a while, you know, the, the, uh, my tech anchor, I believe was the first one out. It enabled us to perform cuff repair, which, which you could, really couldn't do arthroscopically because there were no good transosseous devices. I think there were a few out there at the time, but they were basically drill guides that were hard to use. You were worried about the axillary nerve. It was really futzy. I mean, at that stage, you could kind of barely see, you were just happy to burr the bone down and get out. But You know, the anchors allowed us to actually repair the tendon, which was a very, you know, sexy technique thing at the time. But it introduced a bunch of cost. And what I you know noticed was that it it also introduced a new failure mode, you know, an an anchor-induced failure mode. So when you're putting these anchors in, they're basically too stiff. They're overly stiff, so they don't match the modulus of the tendon. And then we're putting more and more anchors in. We, we went from single row to double row to transosseous equivalent and it's right there in the name transosseous equivalent it's trying to do what the transosseous repair does lay the tendon down perfectly anatomically to the bone but we added a bunch of cost and we created a new anchor induced failure mode which is called a type 2 failure so that's where the tendon essentially gets gets transected because of the uh, the modulus mismatch and the peak pressures are too high there what the human body is trying to do is to reduce this stress gradient from something that's soft to intermediate fiber cartilage down into hard bone. And it's a really hard problem, which it solves through Sharpie's fibers. But when you put a really stiff anchor there and you have this poor tend- poor uh, little tendon that has no blood flow and, and doesn't heal very well, it basically transects it. And then you get a big revision, a big catastrophic revision with an SCR or something. So uh, in my opinion, we, we sort of went down a rabbit hole induced by arthroscopy which is a massive paradigm shift in, in orthopedics and then it's taken us a while to kind of come back and you can see now the market actually is in my opinion is coming back through soft anchors you know subconsciously they're sort of coming back to all suture techniques because you don't want or need the hardware voids the anchor pullouts the transections of the tendon dealing with big bone voids when you're revisit when you're revising these things And so this is where I think soft anchors are coming back in. And what's a soft anchor? Morphologically, it's just a uh, it's a suture with a pre-tied knot essentially. So what I'm doing with transosseous is coming back full circle arthroscopically, which has been the gold standard for a hundred years, and putting the suture in, then tying the knot afterwards. It's really just a suture with a knot in it, just like a you know a soft anchor is, but it does two for one fixation points biomechanically, so it's a lot more efficient. That's kind of what interested me and. your listeners may may like a you know a, an analogy of this in the knee, which is uh, you know, with ACLs, we've seen a lot of paradigms move with the introduction of the arthroscope. If you use ACL in this example, you've seen, you know, a similar thing where back in 1890, a guy named Haygroves described the double bundle anatomic ACL reconstruction, you know, almost exactly like Freddie Fu would describe it today, and it was done open. And then the scope came in. And then in the 90s, the transtibial guide was invented and just introduced into the market with very little study, and almost overnight, the human ACL origin evolved two centimeters up the femur because of that. So it was a technique-driven arthroscopic-driven technique change that then made our ACLs become non-anatomic, and it took 20 years for us to figure this out. Only to come back and figure out that all we have to do is come through the intermedial portal or drill outside in. I noticed you had Stephen Howe previously on your. Podcast, he designed the how guide. You know, he he was noticing this. You know, there was a problem. So the arthroscope can introduce can can introduce us to problems that weren't occurring, and then we have to solve those problems too.
1: I love that you mentioned Codman. It's fascinating to me that now we're in this environment of patient satisfaction, and he was all about the end result. And if I remember right, the name of the hospital. That he started after he got tossed was the end result hospital.
0: That's right. You know, we were talking about podcasts and the effect of how do you get media out and everything. And, you know, I'm not sure I could have done what I'm doing now ten years earlier. You know, there just wasn't a market, but there also wasn't a way to talk to people and get the ideas out. And, you know, one of the things that's come up from studying common is that he he could have done better as well with how he introduced the concepts you know he was so smart but he, he kind of got in his own way in some ways i think like all of us we have to uh be introspective and learn the human side of how, how you introduce ideas it's just fundamentally it's hard for people to accept change and new ideas and it has to be done a certain way if it's going to be effective
1: funny rep story i'll bore you with for a second uh, zimmer came out with the stay tack really early on and we had this wooden block loaded up with that uh, suture anchor in there. And so the doctor could assess just how robust the pullout strength was. And we showed it to this particular surgeon. And he grabs the suture tails and just summarily rips the whole thing out, destroys the demo block. <laughs> and we were left there. It was almost like Napoleon Dynamite when he ran over the bowl. What do we do with this? And it wasn't until like a couple weeks later that we found out that he was a my tech consultant and it was just absolutely hilarious.
0: He did you the favor of uh, expeditiously <laughs> finding the failure mode, right?
1: Yes, he did. Uh, and and I think he said something like he rips it out and he looks uh, looks at us and says, "Well, it looks
0: good." You know, it's it's funny there's a need for some people to just <laughs> break stuff, you know. I had an orthotech one time put the beach chair that we designed on the table. You know, he tightened it all up and he was like checking it to see how robust it was. And he just gave it like a forearm shiver to the head plate and like broke it. Like, (laughs) why would you do that? (laughs) It's like, I don't think it was intended to be uh, to to sustain an elbow strike from a 250 pound guy. Right. That's hilarious. Uh, We should have tested that in the lab. Yes.
1: So before we get too far away from the rotator cuff, what are your top three moves uh, that you think will add some longevity to your repair?
0: Okay. uh, In terms of basic principle thinking, you know, this is where the transosseous techniques are just so rife with literature supported introduction of biological healing elements, mitigation of revision problems, you know, small diameter holes in the bone, small diameter holes in the tendon, load sharing, you know, multiple sutures. The big lesson that's come from multiple studies, Rodeo, Shakumaran, Jost, multiple studies the strength of the repair comes from the sutures and nowadays you've got tapes you've got you know high strength sutures the strength is the suture because it's the suture tendon interface is where the failure mode is if you can put more sutures in and more fixation points is another thing that i'm imploring thought leaders to consider we're, we're thinking in the box with single row double row that all came from thinking about arthroscopic anchor and introduction what we should really be thinking about is number of fixation points per surface area so we want to increase the number of you know i'm i'm doing 8 10 or 12 fixation points putting in four or five tunnels that gives you you know 8 or 10 fixation points with sutures or tapes on all of them so more sutures per repair point and more more repair points per surface area that's going to give you load sharing so that's going to distribute the force across your tendons. So instead of getting that type 2 failure where it truncates the tendon, cuts it in half because you have like a speed bridge, like a two-anchor repair that's just way too stiff, and also giving peak impulse loading to those fixation points, you want to distribute your load across the tendon. And then if it does fail, you have a type 1 failure, and it's easy to revise, and you have no anchors you know, in the tuberosity. It's just like a primary repair. So this is where I spend a lot of time trying to optimize For these repairs, of course, before that, it's it's all about tear recognition, mobilization. You have to not repair the tendon non-anatomically. So these tendons, a lot of times, have complex deforming forces, and you really have to assess that. Spend a lot of time and understand. It's kind of like plastic surgery. You have to understand in your mind's eye this rotation of the tendon. Sometimes it's not direct medial lateral; it's rotation or some combined force. And if you're trying to repair something non-anatomically, going to re because, again, basic principle, you want to minimize tension. Minimizing tension, I do mostly through early repair, younger patient, younger tear, smaller tear, better outcome, you know, less re So, indications can change that, but if you're dealing with chronic ones, then you're, you know, you're into bridging techniques as well. So, you know, this is why I was alluding to earlier, you're really doing a lot of real-time thinking in a cuff. And so it's basically a big optimization problem for time, uh, you know, efficiency, money, surface area, you know, how many fixation points can you get in, in your hands, in your payer mix, in this patient. And the surgeon has to make some decisions there about how the case is going and is, is what they're doing effective at the time. And then that's, that's what I've tried to do is, is to create a system where the surgeon can make decisions in real time just opening things on the back table that are reusable in accordance with how that case is going and and that clinical situation.
1: I was reading an article that had your name attached to it about the hybrid technique. Where does that come into play?
0: Oh yeah, great question. The true transosseous hybrid, it's in in arthroscopic, it's in uh, arthroscopy techniques. Probably the top two concerns of surgeons when when you're trying to teach them transosseous techniques or reteach them for those who have just learned on, like knotless anchors, let's say, is tying knots and soft bone. When the Tornier Arthrotunneler came out, you know, years ago, they were teaching people, you know, how to go full bore into transosseous. And there's a there's a group there's a small niche of surgeons that that want that and, and understand that. And they, especially in Europe and overseas where there's a heavy cost uh, constraint, uh, there's people who say, you know, that's what I want out of a transosseous repair. But in the States, I was finding that it was more of like a middle ground, like a hybrid was going to be more easily adopted. The true transosseous hybrid was an attempt to answer all the questions of modern North American surgeon, address their concerns of soft bone and knot tying, and also get them used to the synergistic effect of transosseous, where you can use, you can use anchors, tapes, screws, et cetera, synergistically with transosseous. They're not mutually exclusive. And you can start using them together and playing with them to achieve the the best of both worlds. And so what we do with the two transosseous hybrid is essentially create what's called an Xbox repair. So it's you know two tunnels, three sutures in each tunnel, and then we make a crossing stitch and a mattress suture and a simple stitch. So you have an independent repair, and you could just stop there and you'd have a transosseous repair. But you basically leave the tails long and you bring one anchor down below the inferior horizontal mattress limb that gives you a final retentioning that's a knotless commercially available anchor of your choice that part's knotless but it's independent so your repair is not hanging on that knotless anchor like it is with a suture bridge technique if that thing failed you've still got a fully independent transosseous repair that's a huge value in my mind it gives you extra uh, sutures to provide compression, it's triple row, so you're getting this force multiplier. You're getting five fixation points with one anchor. You know, so four anchorless and one anchor. It's also backing up the bone. If there's concern over softness of the bone, then you have cortical augmentation of the bone. And there's multiple ways to do this, but the but this technique, it's a uh, it's a, a knotless anchor. So that sort of addresses in one package all of the potential concerns to get people to adopt this. And then once, because there's a huge amount of fear about soft bone, and I'm not sure why, I I think it's because humans are wired to remember, you know, the worst case, you know, we remember the peak thing, and we remember the thing that just happened to us. And that's our reality. So everybody's got the the 80-year-old irreparable cuff tear with butter bone, or the sutures were cutting through. Well, that person gets a reverse now so you know osteoporosis occurs you know around like 75 if you look at the nomograms so there's a ton of cuffs between 40 and 75 that you know where bones bone quality is really not a problem this is another interesting question actually how do you even quantify softness of bone like it's 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 purely qualitative right now there's no instruments out there we use osteoporosis or osteopenia as a surrogate measure but that's really not what we're talking about. Probably the closest thing I've seen is another ortho founder uh, has this uh, smart drill and they're measuring uh, drilling energy in joules. And so, you know, how hard is it to put a screw in? You know, that, that's really what we want to know as, as surgeons. So anyway, this is easy to go down this rabbit hole. But my point is that, you know, people are talking about soft bone and we, we haven't even defined the, the term really in, in orthopedics adequately. It is a fear. It's, it's turning out to be something that is much more rare than people think, and this true transosseous hybrid is the way to actually fix a person with a soft bones cuff, fix a uh, a rotator cuff in the setting of soft bone, and leave open options and actually fix it where you don't have anchors pulled out that engender another surgery. So I think this technique, you know, is actually better than having anchors pull out. Like if you think about it, an anchor doesn't solve the soft bone problem. It just creates a big bone void when it pulls out and a foreign body to go retrieve. The worst case is when you're doing a transosseous equivalent and you put in, you know, all these medial row anchors and then you're tying the knots over the tendon and you feel the anchor pull out under the tendon, you know, and then you got to make a decision. Am I going to take this whole thing down? Well, if the suture cuts through, a little bit, it'll still engage the tendon, and then you can fix it down low in the diaphysis with a knotless anchor, and you'll still have sutures with a transosseous reclage effect fixing your tendon with no hardware to create bone voids or problems in that zone. So, it's a technical solution to, you know, multiple problems.
1: Yeah, this is great information. To your point about soft bone, is there uh, some suture... Brands out there that are a little bit more transosseous friendly and less likely to
0: cut through the bone. Tapes of, of any kind will increase surface area and decrease cut through. High strength suture uh, is what most people are going to use, but I mean, you could make an argument that you may not need so much strength—that you know, as much strength as we have—in some of these. Constructs where the sutures, you know, the modulus mismatch again is so high that you're just slicing through the tissue. You probably want to match that tissue. And there's a, I think there's a, an active research question of do we want even permanent sutures or should we have absorbable sutures? I mean, there's some indication that if you absorb, you offload dynamic tension back to the tendon and you get better healing quality. You get more in thesis, you know, natural in thesis healing rather than scar tissue. Which is kind of what occurs when you put a super stiff construct in. You know, it's kind of like the lesson we learned with uh, locking plates, where it's, you know it's not a panacea. The locking plate can still you know cut through or be overly stiff and cause a non-union. So you know you want something that has that modulus mismatch. So I think most of the sutures right now are pretty commoditized, kind of like anchors. I can't detect you know major advantages uh, other than cost. Not tying, uh, ease of implantation, slideability. I mean, there's various things you can look at, but uh, they're all well over probably what you need for the actual tendon to heal.
1: Question about cost. You brought that up. Uh, I come up to Chattanooga and you do my shoulder. Uh, How much money is it going to save me uh, having it done the transosseous manner versus filling me full of anchors?
0: Well, that depends on... The facility that you're in, and the dynamics of the third-party market around where you are—you know, the ownership of the facility—and it's a lot more complex than just the technique, you know, that the surgeon chooses. But the, the the question of cost, what what we're doing with tensor is, you know, we're giving you a reusable device that breaks down like a shotgun and gets re-sterilized and has a limited disposable that that you open one time during the case. The surgeon decides you know how many sutures are implanted and it's unlimited within that case and sutures you know have a much lower cost than anchors so independent literature by by lazarus at Rothman has shown about a thousand dollars savings per case but it could be a couple thousand dollars less in some of the big tears you know depending on exactly what you're using this varies by country too you know and and, and other countries where there's uh been cost containment and the patient has to pay for their anchors before they even have their surgery what you end up is surgeons booking 10 cases and you get one schedule because the patient can't afford the anchors and so i've had to kind of learn a little bit about that uh, internationally this uh, question of cost is so opacified and so heterogeneous depending on where you are and it's so difficult to understand with third-party dynamics that's a podcast you know in and of itself but Suffice it to say that what I'm trying to do is, is what I'm good at: is, is provide a technical solution for those who are interested, uh, who especially, you know, who are operating in physician-owned surgery centers where you, you know, actually are part of the facility and, and you, you're co-aligned. Your incentive is aligned to be open-minded to cost savings measures. You know, if you're if you're working in a hospital and it and it means nothing for you to open 20 anchors, you're not going to care if that's your surgery center and you get a huge bill, you know, every month for for that hardware cost, you're going to think more about how can I do this different? How how can I do my Medicare cases? You know, instead of taking them to the hospital, how can I keep them at my own surgery center and be a little bit more open minded to that? So there's definitely that value component, which is technically offered. And then it's a, and then it's an additional step to take it and, and put it into practice, like in your regional payer dynamic and, and so forth, but this is what I was talking about with Regen Med. If a surgeon wanted to just go off insurance and, and offer a fixed price, like they did at the Surgery Center of, of Oklahoma, for instance, Dr. Smith, I think, pioneered that. They had people flying in from all over the place with medical tourism because the price was transparent. You know, it was right there. And so this is just another tool to actually give you the benefits of arthroscopy. You know, everybody knows you can do an open cuff. I mean, I've heard of surgeons doing that, like Medicare patients just doing open cuff repair transosseously, which is fine. But what's the benefit of of arthroscopy? Aren't we going down the thought that arthroscopy is better, that it has benefits? With tensor, you can you can apply the the techniques of arthroscopy, but still stay, you know, under that cost ceiling, and have that good balance of uh, you know technology, cost, outcomes. You could bring the orthobiologics in under a cost ceiling if you want, and it gives you that laterality where you can, the surgeon can distribute the cost according to their preferences in their system. If that makes sense.
1: You've said tensor surgical uh, a couple times. I want to open that up a little bit for my audience. You're the chief medical officer of Tensor Surgical Value Based Soft Tissue Repair Solutions there in Chattanooga. Many patents under your belt. How did this all come about, and uh, where are you guys now?
0: So we started this back in 2012, started it here in Chattanooga, multiple iterations down the line, got funded with local and angel VC funding and got it up to market ready. And now we've got a a group of grassroots surgeons that are on board with the techniques. And it's really come a long way. It's been a great ride. We just recently... Uh, recruited uh, Justin Anderson as our CEO, who was the uh, global VP of sports at Tournier And uh, so he commercialized the Arthur Tunneler for Tournier, which was the reusable version. At the time, there wasn't a great market for it. But now that value is coming on, we feel like the timing is a lot better. We've been fortunate enough to uh, convince him that we have a, a better mousetrap, you know, second mover in the space. That was one of the things that I think we were able to do here with just sort of the... The old school surgeon and engineer working super tightly together and just kind of doing it in the garage back and forth in the OR we were able to eliminate multiple steps from the application of the device which was a that was a problem for adoption it was just you know many surgeons felt the previous devices were just too foxy to use so you know we eliminated a few steps we eliminated drilling there's no drilling there's you know small diameter poke holes in the bone very fast application you can make a tunnel in under 20 seconds and make that all reusable so that was what we were able to uh, to get as the gateway and um, I'm thinking that the sky's the limit from there once you can put tunnels in very quickly you know the next level of novelty Tunnel-specific fixators and and other techniques is is it's like a Pandora's box. It's like your imagination is the only limit, really. There's so many different ways it can work with screws, tapes, augments, buttons. Uh, that's kind of the phase that we're hitting now, in terms of you know where we are uh, with the company. It's it's really exciting from the business perspective, but it's been really exciting for me as from the surgeon side, in terms of the clinical benefits. Which at the beginning of this journey, I really didn't know, frankly. I thought it was mostly a value play, but it turns out that the pain after cuff repair, which is a, a notoriously painful procedure, is significantly reduced with transosseous techniques, and there's level one data on this. Randelli, and I believe it's 2017, AJSM, showed that in an RCT. That's definitely been our clinical experience is that these patients have significantly less pain it puts uh, opioid sparing cuff really within striking distance clinically, which is a, you know, that's a, that's a big trend in orthopedics right now. You know, again, this is a, another thing. It's kind of like soft bone. Why is that? I think it's, it's an active question, but my theory is that pressure in bone causes pain. Like when you have an AV, when you have AVN, there's, there's, there's pressure increase and when you're cramming an anchor into a hole with a diameter mismatch, you're plastically deforming the bone. That's increasing pressure, and it creates fracture physiology. And there's studies out now that show that you can have bone marrow edema on the MRI for like six months after that. That's why that, that may be one of the reasons why they hurt so bad. That probably in the tension of the repair. But when you're doing transosseous tunnels, you're relieving pressure, and you're letting all those bone marrow elements come onto the repair site. Definitely seems to be uh, less pain, less, less opioid use. And then we've also seen better healing characteristics on the MRI where you get this homogeneous type 1 tendon and you don't have what they call a Segaea 3, like a partial failure where you have the ten- partial tearing adjacent to those uh, medial anchors with, a, with the transosseous equivalent technique. So there's been a lot of uh, interesting you know, clinical development. So yeah, we've been real happy with it, real, real fortunate to be here.
1: Yeah, I love the whole concept of the persistence the illusion of marrow elements into the space after you close it's still going on that's got to have some good points to it as well
0: yeah in some cases uh dr shukumaran Uma shukumaran up at uh johns hopkins has done several cases with the tensor and he follows with ultrasound he's got two-year follow-up now on anchor based repairs versus transosseous you know showing no differences but you can actually see on ultrasound the uh Tunnels, you know, healing into the tendon mm-hmm. in the post-op phase. It's, it's really, it's really amazing with the Doppler ultrasound. And there's a Japanese study showing this as well. The blood flow after transosseous seems to be, you know, much increased. It's not strangulated. It's, uh, it's like an active biologic site.
1: The surgeon listeners that want to know more about what y'all are doing, where do they find
0: you? TensorSurgical uh, would be the best. Or you can hit me up on LinkedIn dm me on linkedin but uh we have a website tensor surgical probably be the best place to start
1: one of the one other item that i saw your name attached to was on djo's website the adaptable positioner and i believe striker has a hand in that as well uh, uh, tell me how you came up with that that's super cool
0: that was actually my first uh, foray into uh, the device design a class one positioning device and you know it's uh one of the less sexier things to design, I guess, but um, but very necessary, you know. Positioning, lighting, exposure—it's like surgery 101. We started on this beach chair positioner, which is a very difficult thing for surgeons, uh, residents, you know, PAs to learn—you know, how to how to position a patient in the sitting position once they've been intubated and protect their airway and protect you know their cervical spine alignment so we designed this uh, beach chair positioner that allowed you know six degrees of freedom on the head neck airway control so sort of like a fracture table like if you wanted to nail a femur fracture you would want to have control of length alignment and uh, rotation and if you if you want to do that you have to have specific levers on your table to do those things so you know we did that for the head neck assembly it's really an interesting problem because everything in supine when the the anesthesia doctor is trying to intubate is totally different you know what they want and then what we want when they're sitting up are basically totally different so your table has to adapt and you want it to adapt to the patient instead of making the patient adapt to the table which is kind of what you're doing with the horseshoe on a stick you know limited adjustment model so we started out with that and then grew that into a a mechanical arm positioner, three bar linkage, carbon fiber, lightweight mechanical arm positioner with no electric or, or gas lines. A very lightweight, effective way to stably position the arm for use in orthoplasty, fractures, and arthroscopy. Got that up to its basically mature state. And interestingly, for those device people out there, the, the pivot point was DJO. Becoming interested in it as an off table DA hip platform. So they've acquired it and applied it for off table DA hip applications where they have traction on the leg and you could break the table in the middle and then you could have retractors coming in from the opposite side, all positionable by passive, essentially passive robotic technology where you squeeze a handle, you put the limb in the desired position and let go and it holds it stable. Yeah, that's kind of found its way into a different niche there and striker endoscopies marketing it for uh, sports med positioning. I believe there's a spine company looking at doing some navigated lateral spine approaches for it. So and it's interesting to have it kind of go into three different domains there.
1: That's a real safety feature in my mind. Uh, having managed a HANA table many times throughout my career and, and that little drop to the floor thing always scared me to death. If if I'd lose my grip or something happens here, th- this could go really sideways. And, and I love I love what you've designed into that thing. When you let go of that handle, it locks. There's no free fall.
0: Exactly. You know, going on and off the table, that's extra time. You know, again, coming back to the big the big trends in orthopedics, outpatient and value that are all every you know, joints are going to the outpatient surgery center, people are doing DA hips in their surgery center. A $100,000 hand a table is a big expense. And if you can do that with an arm position or two that you already have and that your shoulder guys use, I mean, that's a big synergy. So it's just one more little niche thing to to think about. As everything goes to the surgery center, you know, you want to find these synergies. You want to find these interplays and these ecosystems that were essentially just inefficiencies of the big hospital setting.
1: Before we get away from the clinical stuff, I had to ask you this question. I was showing a humeral nail the other day, and I remembered your paper on locked plating versus intramedullary nailing. And all I could think of was, uh, a- am I doing something wrong here?
0: <laughs> <laughs> With nailing? <laughs> yeah, well, by showing this humeral nail. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, that was back in the days when uh had just come out with the, uh, the apple plate they called it because they they put an they put a, an apple on the locked plate and it was you you had you, you could like rip the apple off and it, and locked plating was you know and the biomechanics of it were were all the rage and um yeah i've I've gone a lot more towards uh fixing i, I actually do a structural allograph technique that i learned partially uh in edinburgh and then kind of modified and now I'm sort of biologically rebuilding the proximal humerus and, and plating it and um, grafting it you know, aggressively with structural allograft inside you. I've had some great results with that. And then it makes your tuberosities heal so that if you have to convert to an arthroplasty later, if your tuberosities are healed, your outcome's going to be a lot better.
1: I see a lot of ring doctor experience in combat sports on your CV. Not sure I want to be the rep telling you I forgot something. What pulled you into that sport?
0: Yeah, that's been fun. I was a wrestler so kind of gravitated towards that. I took a foray, you know, in college into cheerleading, you know, and, and uh, was was a D1 cheerleader for for a while in college and then afterwards got back into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and training combat and sports and and martial arts and as a sports doc it was uh, it was something that I was really drawn to. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to get trained by one of the early docs uh, that was doing that out in California and wrote the, wrote the rule set, the commissioner of, of Tennessee, they wrote the rule set for the first legal MMA fights in Tennessee was able to be right there for the UFC and force and all the shows that were, you know, coming into, to our state at the time. So yeah, it was, uh, it's really been fun. You know, if you compare it to a, uh, what you normally do as a sports doc, you're kind of like a bystander in mixed martial arts at the at the high levels like the UFC. I mean, it's like a mix it's like a mix of uh, sports medicine, entertainment, trauma <laughs> and sort of being a referee, you know, it's if if you if you enter the ring, you know, the fight stops. So they always want their docs to be trained in the positions and, and what's happening to the fighter, you know. You can have a fighter that's out on their feet and and it's your job to prevent their brain trauma so uh there's situations where people can you know be in uh, joint locks or or be uh in chokes and so forth and it's hard to tell what's going on and so the doctors kind of need to understand that you know in the early days there was and when they allowed the elbow strikes on the ground you know there's a lot of lacerations and a lot of bleeding and you know they had they had some docs stop fights early because of relatively minor but gruesome looking you know cuts you know people who have who are relatively higher on the on the learning curve in terms of uh, actually being you know interactive? So that's been a real fun, real fun thing to do, and got got to meet some really interesting people along the way doing it.
1: When I was a kid, I always used to play this game in my mind: Is anybody doing exactly what I'm doing right now? And as I juxtapose that upon you, and I'm thinking about: Is there anybody in the world that progressed from cheerleading? To wrestling, to a blue out and jiu-jitsu, and is now refereeing mixed martial arts. I, I dare say not.
0: <laughs> no, I don't think so. No. Um, you you got to have you got to have an open mind to things, to experiences, and uh, that's uh, I think that's what led me in innovation. You know, it's like I like those weird little combinations of new experiences and and old knowledge and trying to find that, that boundary of known versus unknown and order and chaos and kind of living right at that edge, you know, that's, what's fun.
1: Well, in your defense doctor, uh, they asked was it Moscone? Why do you rob banks? And he said, cause that's where yeah, the that's, money that's is. Where, that's and, where the money is. I'm thinking that's where the girls were. So <laughs> that's right. More power to yeah. you. I saw a shirt recently that said, paddle faster. I hear banjos. Could it be coming from your house?
0: <laughs> some of it could be yeah if you're on chickamauga lake it could be me <laughs> i picked that up in in med school actually i got trained uh you know early on guitar from a, a country picker in nashville He's a juilliard trained country picker i kind of cut my teeth on a lot of bluegrass picked up the banjo in med school i mean that thing's like playing a drum you know and a guitar at the same time it's really percussive it's uh really interesting You know, all right hand. You know, I I like techniques. It's kind of a surgical thing. All the like different techniques, techniques that make your brain think differently. Uh, So, like using the right hand on the rolls, completely, you know, opposite of most of what you're doing with flat picking. And so that was fascinating. And there there was a really steep learning curve there. You kind of hit a zone where you can do most of the old traditional stuff and then you go to like a different Bella Fleck level that's unobtainable for me. But, you know jazz banjo or something at one point i thought you know i'm going to try to learn all the bluegrass instruments and i went on to fiddle and i was in an apartment in med school and i realized it was fretless and it sounded like i was strangling a cat and i had no volume modulation so i was just like i'm going to stop it there
1: <laughs> <laughs> i saw bela fleck And the Fleck Tones, Wooten, I believe, was the bass player. And I walked away from that. I walked away from that concert just wanting to sell all of my equipment because I'm a loser. (laughs) I'm never going to be able to play at that level.
0: In the face of such talent, you just have to grovel. Wooten would do a backflip with his bass on. Did you ever see that?
1: No, I did not. That's insane.
0: He would be like slapping bass, playing. All these crazy riffs, and then just all of a sudden stop and do a backflip with his bass on, and then just keep playing.
1: Well, congratulations to you, though. I mean, you didn't do a backflip, but you won the Med Rock Battle of the Physician Bands. That's pretty cool.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right. You've done your research. That was one of those things where I had kind of put music away for a long time, and um, yeah, I wanted to touch on this point as well with with innovation and, and music, like. It, it before I was doing innovation, I would go play music a lot for you know the creative outlet, stress reliever. It works sort of that different intuitive machinery in the in the brain, which are which are different than the, the machinery that regurgitates things that you've learned and automatizes processes and you know the left brain sort of ver, you know rationalizes things and so forth.'re they're, they're really different. When I started doing innovation, you know I didn't play music as much because it was kind of satisfying the same, you know, intuitive part of the brain. And, you know, it's like when you're, when you've taken VC money and you're trying to pr- have a solution to this problem, you know, and you have to create it from scratch, de novo, like that's the part of your brain that, that does that, you know. And so you're maxed out and you only have so much bandwidth. And then once you get to a point where you can kind of take a breather, you know, it's like I'm coming like back to music. And th- that was one of these things that they put on as a chariot- charity event. Here in town they had battle of the physician bands and you know there's a ton of physicians that are awesome musicians and you would think that'd be hard to populate but apparently not there's tons of you know, physicians that were could get as part of a band and so forth and yeah so i got in with a funk band and uh, just had a had a blast playing with them and really brought me back to the older days of, of performing
1: I absolutely loved that headstock camera that you showed off on LinkedIn. I had seen uh, Keith Urban use one of those in a a concert I attended once. Uh, You're getting close, doctor. Is there anything I can do to fill this glaring hole in your musical repertoire and get an electric in your hands?
0: <laughs> You're close. Absolutely. Is, is that your is that your uh, is that your weapon of choice?
1: That's my weapon. That's my only weapon of choice. The only thing I have any competency in at all, so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I've got a Fender. I don't know. These days I I do most of my stuff on acoustic and went down that path of sort of acoustic rock for a big chunk of time and uh but I'm coming back to some of the things that you can do on electric and and piano, you know. I I have a uh um, I have a Yamaha, uh, Desclavier. Have you ever seen one of those?
1: Oh yeah. Those are amazing.
0: I had no idea of technology innovation that had occurred in, in pianos, but, <laughs> but I came in and, you know, this thing's got monitor speakers and it can teach you, it moves, you know, it plays itself and it, it moves the keys to teach you. And, you know, the, the sales rep, you know, my, my four year old was with me at the time and he walks up and the sales rep, watches this, he hits a button and, uh, the keys like start moving and it teaches my four-year-old to play like Pachelbel's cannon like right in front of me. And I'm like, okay, so I've had fun with that. So I go back to the piano quite a bit. Uh, Electric, electric guitar is definitely in the mix. There's some things you just have to, uh, you just got to crank it up and, uh, and rock to, you know, you just can't get it done any other way. Uh,
1: I love what you said. You actually filled a gap in my mind. I have found the same exact thing. That when I have a heavy creative output on other things, my guitar just sits here beside me and just stares at me. I, I got nothing for it. But uh, like you said, when the clouds clear out and there's a little bit of room, a little bit of bandwidth, then I want to play again. That that's so interesting to me.
0: I think it's more well understood how to eliminate errors, reduce risk. You know, sort of like the six sigma thing of decreasing errors, like like incremental advancing of, of concepts but that intuition that creative insight you have a lot more meetings about how to reduce errors and eliminate you know waste than you do of how to like increase creativity you know because <laughs> like nobody knows what that is and i was like but that's kind of what you're getting you're tapping into With, i mean in our case it's music and um there's probably some other substances involved in, in other people's cases, but uh, you can, you know, it, you can, it's it's sort of a it's a different machinery in the brain for sure.
1: Well, you're in Tennessee. Brad Paisley wrote a country song about his younger self uh, writing a letter to him. If you were giving advice to a, a younger Brett Sanders or to other surgeons just coming in right now, what would it be?
0: You know, it's highly variable. You'd have to know the skill set of the person you're advising but more and more having gone down paths of doing things myself or kind of going you know they say you know if you want to go fast go alone if you if you want to go far you know go together you know i felt like with some of the stuff i'm doing it's on the edge enough that it wouldn't be done you know in in the in the existing you know corporate structure let's say or maybe even academic medical structure but if you can get into a situation where you can be mentored By someone you know i think that's one of the things that i underestimated early in my career in terms of making meaning you know you want to make meaning with what you do and for me this foray into something that you know i think is the world needs right now uh, definitely for to allow our systems you know to keep working and so forth i mean there's there's philosophical reasons why i'm doing what i'm doing and it's and it's and it's making meaning and I think you know that's the ultimate metric of what you want to go for is, is is making meaning and um and I think mentors, if you can find one, if you're doing something where there is one, they're few and far between sometimes if you're doing something new. But mentorship is so important to to receive and and also to give. It kind of forces you, you know, sort of like teaching forces you to learn your subject matter. It, it forces you to learn yourself to to be, mentor someone else and. um you know, to receive messages from older mentors that have already been there and done that, and it kind of forces you to call out your own deficits and and benefit from, from what they've done. And then there's something in that relationship, too. And, you know, you can do that in business. You can do that in medicine. You can do it in both. You can do it in your family and apply those to your family because, you know, ultimately, that's what's driving all the other stuff that you're doing is is the support that you're getting, you know, at the family level. And uh, that level of accountability. So
1: that's great stuff. Uh, any advice to the reps listening to the show? What they can be doing to bring value to the surgeons in the operating room?
0: Th- there's two big things at play in our field right now: value, outcome over cost, de- you know, defined by the Harvard Business School, and outpatient surgery centers, where two big paradigms, you know, two fields meet, is usually where interesting things are happening, right? you know biotech or you know there's there's multiple examples of that so those are two big things where there's a lot of opportunity i'd say you know being open to the to the reality i would say that's coming and that's here the way you were doing things and the way you were trained is not the way you're going to be doing it in the future likely it's going to be better faster cheaper there's going to be ways you know the way that you did it in the hospital with all the inefficiency and and all of the way that that was done is going to be forced to change in the outpatient surgery venue. And so just be open to that and look for areas where you can synergize uh, and help help your doctors that are, you know, especially if they're surgery center owners, with finding these low-hanging fruits of synergistic technologies that can fill that value void. Because almost nothing in medicine was designed to be interoperable, right? EMRs are the worst example of it. But everybody's doing their own thing and then there's these huge gaps in between and they're just not getting filled. Well, all that's going to get smoothed out when the decision process is occurring at the granular level of you know physicians and reps and patients like it is in a surgery center where they have to true up that problem rather than like a big B2B transaction with a big insurance company and a big hospital. So yeah, I would say look for those and, and just be open-minded to those new those new opportunities of combining things into the Outpatient Surgery Center. And I think everything's going to go there.
1: Saves advice, Dr. Sanders. Thank you so much for coming on Device Nation to tell us about these exciting things going on in your world. It was a real pleasure to speak to you.
0: Well, it's been really fun. Kudos to you for what you've done with this podcast and bringing on the uh, personalities and the highly accomplished individuals that you have. And I really think you're on to something with this. I've listened and learned from some of your podcasts, both from here on the rep side and the, and the physician side. So thank you for the opportunity and I look forward to, to more good things from your podcast. Well,
1: those were some kind words and a great conversation with Dr. Brett Sanders. I'm including links in the show notes for a lot of the things that he's excited about. We even threw in tabs for the Beverly Hillbillies theme. He'll understand that joke. Appreciate him coming on the show and sharing his life with us. That was awesome. What was not so awesome was my response to my daughter the other day. She asked me a question about something and clearly did not think that I was as much in her frame as I needed to be. She said, Dad, what is that episode you were doing on? What was that topic? Imp- uh, empath-? I said, empathetic? She said, yeah, that's the one. Well, it sounded more pathetic than empathetic right there. And I went, ouch. Ouch. She got me, and she was probably right. So that's our charge this week, certainly mine, if I'm to regain any vestige of respect from my daughter. Get out of the pathetic and get into the empathetic, getting into other people's frame, and at the same time, staying safe, delta-free. Hope you have an awesome rest of your day, and look forward to seeing you next time.